You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, today is kind of a, a cool episode because we have 2% Executive Director Jared Frazier. We have a member, uh, they're the Wildlife Project Coordinator for the National Wildlife Federation, Simon Bazard, and we have 2% Volunteer Clark Dodd. Uh, and these guys are actually currently, uh, when we recorded this, had just gotten done with a day of mending and removing fence uh, to clear. Uh, passage for pronghorn uh, migration out there in Montana. So there's not really uh, a lot to give you in terms of kind of uh, what the episode is about, but <clears throat> what I will say is it's very cool to hear the the work, the research, everything that's going into trying to help this population of pronghorn in this particular area of Montana uh, be able to to get from one point to the other uh, from their summer range to their winter range uh, as best as possible to try to keep that pronghorn uh, population strong and to hear you know some of the stories that Simon and Clark tell uh, about the volunteers and really what goes into everything is just super cool. Uh, it's a three-year project that they're working on so if, if you hear this and this is something that you're interested in doing Definitely be sure to, to reach out to 2% uh, for next year uh, because they'll be doing uh, the same work, just likely in a different location. So episode 60, uh, enjoy. 
Before the episode, though, I want to take a second to tell you about our partners over at Stone Glaciers. Uh, Stone Glacier, and one of the really cool things is Stone Glacier uh, spent some time out on this exact same project that uh, you're about to hear about. So Stone Glacier, while everyone knows that they're 2% certified, um, you know, this is just, you know, just one of the many things that they're doing to give back to wildlife. Uh, I highly suggest supporting um not only Stone Glacier, but all 2% brands. Um, and with Stone Glacier, be sure and check them out at stoneglacier.com. Pick out all your packs or really anything you need to get outfitted for, you know, whether it's a whitetail hunt, a western hunt, you know, you're heading up to Alaska, wherever it is, they're going to have gear for you. Uh, also, be sure to download the Stone Glacier app, uh, whether you have iTunes or Google Play. Uh, and again, check them out, stoneglacier.com. All right. I would like to welcome to the podcast today. We kind of have a special uh, edition. We have 2% Executive Director Jared Frazier. Uh, we have Simon Bazard and we have Clark Dodd. Gentlemen, how are you this evening? Oh, we're doing great here, I think, Marcus. Yeah, doing well. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, no, uh, I know this was all put together super last minute um, because of some uh, errant scheduling issues on my end. Uh, but uh, with speaking with Jared, uh, we're able to get this going. And you guys, the cool thing uh, about tonight's conversation uh, is that you guys are actually kind of uh, at ground zero or you guys are currently in the field uh, working on a, a big habitat project. So I appreciate you guys making some time. Yeah, no problem. Good to have it. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, of course. So before we kind of dive in to the, the work that you guys are currently doing out there right now, uh, if you guys could give me kind of a little bit of background or uh, a little introduction on the two of your, uh, the two of you guys, if you could. So, uh, Simon, why don't you go ahead and go first? Sure. So, um, I work for the National Wildlife Federation, uh, the uh, Northern Rockies, Prairies, uh, and Pacific region that's based in Missoula, Montana. And um, I'm the wildlife project coordinator there. Uh, it's just started in March. Um, in this position where I'm uh, working with a bunch of different organizations to use collared pronghorn data to prioritize fence mitigation projects so that um, yeah, seasonal range and migration corridors can, um, yeah, we can improve that habitat um, by, by working on fences that, you know, may inhibit movement. Um, so that's why I'm here. Leading, leading these groups of volunteers. It's been really great to have uh, folks from 2% um, and other groups these past, this past last week and then have this, this full week ahead as well. So so it's quite the project that you guys have. Yeah, right? At least, oh, sorry. Sorry, guys. Ah, that's okay. Go ahead, Clark. Yeah, I, I'm just here. I, you know, I, I got a, a little bit involved in this project um, last year when Jared first put out uh, a flyer on it and I was uh, encouraging backcountry hunters and anglers Montana chapter to get involved and, and uh, we went around about with that stuff and then I, I could not make it down with those guys on Saturday and and uh, so made it in with, with Jared with the 2% folks for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday instead so that's how I I kind of wound up here with with this operation today. So, all right, now that we kind of have a, a little bit of a background uh, established here, uh, let's kind of get into the reason uh, that you guys, well, first off, where are you guys currently located right now? Because I know it's uh, To make sure volunteers have, have some sustenance out there. Yeah, right on. So how far, whereabouts is Dylan, I guess, in relation to where you guys are doing the work or where exactly are you doing the work out there? Yeah, so um, we're doing the work in uh, the Horse Prairie Valley, which is southwest of Dillon, about 40 miles. Um, and it's uh, one of the tributaries of the Beaverhead River. Um, so we're in the Beaver, yeah, we're working in the Beaverhead watershed and um that's yeah. Dillon is the closest town to that area. Okay. And real quick, with uh, in, in relation to the you know the project spot and then this office uh, for folks who live in, in smaller states or more populated states, uh, you're probably you know not dealing with having to drive 
you know, three to four hours from your main office to get a project done. And for organizations uh, here in the West, that's a lot of gas money. And, and it's a big, big variable on how much are you going to have to spend, how do you budget for it, and all of that. And having a shared offices like this, this is, I think, the fourth one I've been in in the last two years where there's multiple conservation groups sharing some of the cheapest office space you can find in a, <laughs> in a small town. And it saves so much money when you're trying to get these projects done in these remote locations, uh, not having people drive back and forth and uh, having a place to store gear and to, to put supplies. Um, I, I was out on a project five years ago where it was literally a wall tent that they just kept up and hoped no raccoons and rats got mm-hmm. into it. So, you know, folks might wonder, you know, why why is an organization renting office space? It actually saves a ton of money doing it. So that's more money that can go into the ground. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I know that for a lot of these organizations, um, and and Jared, you and I have talked about this in the past, but trying to keep that overhead as low as possible. So yeah, any money that's coming in can go, you know, right back into the ground, right back into projects uh, and and all of the, the things that are actually getting work done. So I will let you guys kind of uh, talk me through the kind of the the project, uh, maybe from like a 30,000 foot view. And then let's kind of, as we go along, kind of hone it down and, and really, you know, what uh, maybe the goal is over the two weeks that, uh, that you guys are out there. And then what you kind of hope to see as long term um, positive effects uh, from what you're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Great. So, uh, thanks. I, yeah, so I, um, started, like I mentioned, I started in March and my, this whole project is funded, uh, through the national fish and wildlife foundation. Um, and, uh, a big part of it. So it's a three year grant that we have through at the national wildlife federation. Um, and a big part of that grant is to, uh, to have a 50% match uh, non-federal match from from outside you know so that could be cash or it could be volunteer hours and so that's kind of how i got hooked up with two percent for conservation um was to have this yeah great venue uh for reaching out to organizations that want to do conservation work so um that's how i got to meet jared um and clark here so it's been it's been great to have uh that interest and, and, uh, volunteer crews ready, ready to go for me this year, starting out. Um, so the grant is uh, focused on the pronghorn populations that move between, uh, the horse prairie Valley and the big hole, uh, Valley, which some folks have probably heard of outside of Montana. The big hole is kind of a, one of our famous, um, trout streams. And, uh, this, this population of pronghorn, you know, my, we, they didn't really know the extent of their migrations. Uh, so this collaring study is now in its third year. Uh, and, and we have, you know, that, that data to look at um, and work with the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks biologists, the BLM biologists, the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologists, and um, other organizations to, you know, kind of coordinate these these fence mitigation projects that have been going on for a long time, but there was no central person coordinating them. So that's what I'm here to do is uh, reach out to landowners, um, talk about opportunities to find, uh, yeah, solutions for, uh, for wildlife. Um, as maybe, maybe some people don't know this, but uh, pronghorn don't, they don't tend to jump over fences. Uh, they didn't evolve, um, a proclivity to, to jump on the open prairies. So fences can pose a serious barrier to their daily and seasonal movement. And, um, yeah, my, my master's background is in mapping, uh, fences because fences are one of these, you know, human made, uh, features on the landscape that we don't have good maps for. Um, so if we're combining, you know, maps of fences with, that movement data, then we can prioritize these on, on the ground projects. So I'm hoping to get about 10 miles of, of fencing improved in, in these priority areas this year. 
uh, and do do that each year for three years. So about 30 miles of, of fence either modified where we remove the bottom strand and, and, and replace it with a, uh, a smooth wire and, and raise it up to 16 to 18 inches so that uh, pronghorn and other, other wildlife like juvenile elk and mule deer can also um, get hung up and moose. We saw moose uh, and calf out there. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's there, there's definitely multi-species benefit, but pronghorn are kind of the, the iconic species that have such a hard time with fences. And in this area, their population hasn't been doing great. So uh, they're, they're kind of the reason why we have this funding to, to, to create, you know, maintain these migration corridors, hopefully long into the future. Clark, do you want to share about the moose we saw with the calf? Yeah, we did. We were uh, yesterday morning, or yesterday afternoon, I guess, we were pulling down some fence and whooped down into the, the riparian area down kind of below us, down by the creek, and, uh, and I saw a, a moose calf kind of running back and forth. And uh, then we, as we look around, we can see mom back over by some willows. Well, it turns out she's she's on the other side of a fence line from the calf and the calf was, was clearly wanted to be with mom. And, uh, I think Simon said that they, they had done some, some, uh, work on some fence down there. And, and these guys, these two, uh, moose were, you know, on the old school fence that, uh, the little one was not comfortable jumping or squeezing through or uh, even a small moose is going to have a hard time getting through between some barbed wire strands. Right. You know, there's pretty big critters. But uh, yeah, uh, so we we watched them. Eventually, they, they they wiggled themselves around and got down. I think they were headed towards some of the the newer fence that that maybe the little one could could uh, work with, deal with, and get over to mom. But um, and then we saw then we saw a couple of uh, spike bull elk this morning that uh, we bumped as we were working on a fence line and and, uh, and they they ran towards a, a fence line right there and and they had a hard time trying to pick a way to get over and that was sheep fence yeah. you know we've talked about the, the barbed wire fence but that's the sheep fence that's a woven wire fence that that is uh, I mean some of it I mean even I mean, you have to be like a rabbit or something size to get through some of that stuff. That's yeah. um, it's so so tight, you know, so such small um, spaces in it. But uh, yeah, that, those those elk, which I mean, they're pretty good athletes and can get up and over <laughs> stuff. But they were looking for a, they were looking for a low spot to get across. So um, yeah, you, you, you can see some. You can see some. Uh, <laughs> Some direct benefit yeah. when you see that, yeah. or you know, hey, we're we're gonna make a make an impact here on things, and then and then the pictures that you guys had, the trail cam pictures with the, the backs of some of the antelope yeah. that were that were just incredibly scarred up from from the um, going underneath the barbed wire. It really uh, it, it makes you appreciate that it would feel like you're doing something that's that's having a specific impact right. Right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say was was uh, being able to be out there and then see, obviously, the direct uh, impact that it had, you know, whether, you know, that that portion of the fence that the moose were able to to get through was, you know, done last week or, or maybe a few days ago. I mean, that's that's a good feeling to know that that work, you know, what you set out to do is ultimately you know, working and, and accomplishing that goal. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you see it other, other places uh, where I live, there's some sheep fence. Um, I'm, you know, three or four hours away from here, but when I would be driving into work and I would see that the elk moving across the, the highway and you've got calving season and you've got calves that are stuck on the, on the highway side of the sheep fence and mama is on the other side looking back and the little ones running back and forth, trying to figure out a way to get around and through the sheep fence. And there's, you know, it's, it's hard on. Them. They've got enough challenges out there. They don't, they don't need sheep yeah. fence when they don't have to have sheep fence. Yeah. So, 
we've uh, we actually one of our collaborators, one of our team, essentially, um, just hiked, followed one of these pronghorn female pronghorns uh, from Horse Prairie Valley up into the big hole, about halfway um, on her trek. So it's about 50 miles. So it's, it's about 100 miles one way that she's going uh, from her winter range to summer range. And uh, she, we encountered uh, 39 fences. So it, it ended up being about um, a fence every mile and a half that these animals are having to navigate. So that was something we didn't know before. Yeah. So for, for a couple questions about the study here. So I know you said it's a, it's a three-year study. Um, had you collected some sort of data prior to like this year being the first year that you actually started to either modify or remove the fence? Yeah. So the, the pronghorn study is a separate uh, kind of project that Montana Fish, Fish Wildlife and Parks is, is leading. And that's a, that's a multi-year, I think five or six year study. Um, and they have eight different study areas around Montana that they're, that they're collaring female pronghorn to, um, to understand their movements better. Um, and so my project to essentially take that data, combine it with fence data and, uh, go out there and, and do on the ground projects and sort of this adaptive management strategy to, you know, yeah, we see, we see, we look at the satellite imagery of, of movements and, you know, there's a potentially a clear line where these animals are stopping uh, and changing direction. And we can, it's pretty obvious that that's a fence. Um, so we go out there and, and look at it and, and see what kind of fence it is and um, what needs to be done to it to allow a movement across that, that fence. Um, so, so my project to do that work, that on the ground work is, is a three year, is three year grant. Okay. And so we've had we've had two years of the pronghorn data to kind of get us started and, and show, illuminate where these bottlenecks are. Yeah, it's really clear too. Some of the, the uh, GPS tracking data, uh, you know, the, the the mapping that you that you had from Vanna's stuff, um, where they just it, there's a straight line where they stop, and something's stopping them right there, and they're all you know, heavily lined in there and, and it, man, they, it certainly looks like they want to continue south through here, but for some reason, only that one, that one, uh, devil must've gotten through somehow and wandered all around, but the others were all just yeah. run right up against a fence. Like you might see cattle yeah. in, a, in a corner of a field, you know? Yeah. And what makes it interesting too, is that Idaho, uh, has pronghorn data from, you know, from their side and, we're in, you know, very southwest corner of Montana. Uh, well, one of the southwest corners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, you know, they come up, so they kind of mirror the, the Montana pronghorn. They just start further south. So the northern range, uh, the northern extent of their range uh, from Idaho is the southern extent of the Montana range. Um, and, and really the, the gap between those two populations at least the ones that are collars, um, is a road with fences along it. Uh, so it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty stark, um, you know, visual when you look at those, those two populations and their movement, they're separated by, yeah, some, some riparian habitat and, um, uh, a paved road and, and a bunch of fences. And a lot of the fences are woven wire. When I was driving out to the spot yesterday morning, uh, I was, I, I got here a little early, um, and well, first off to put in, I have never put in, uh, uh, coordinates into my Google maps. Like I had to yesterday, the, the, the road where this project is on doesn't have a sign on it. And that's because people probably try to steal the sign or complain about it. It's called bloody dick road. <laughs> I don't know if you have, a, I don't know if you have a beeper market, you might need to work it, but. You know, I tried to put that into my phone, and it was like, mm-mm. Uh, so, <laughs> the sign is not there. It's heading there on somebody's garage wall. Yeah, it's, it's probably, probably in the tavern in Wisdom. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no sign when you get out there either. 
but I, I wanted to get an early start so I could see, you know, if there was any wildlife. And sure enough, it's this sheep fence, this this uh, this woven sheep fence that looks like a volleyball net, mm-hmm. and it's about, you know, what did you say, four feet, five feet tall, four feet. Some of it, yeah, some of it. You know, some of it, like I think what we were on is probably four feet. And then I think that some of that stuff where you we were we stopped today and pinched some of the barbs down on that bottom strand, some of that that might be five feet on that other side. That's, well, yeah, that's some, some high stuff. Yeah, sometimes you get a strand or two of barbed wire on top, which right. is what was going on with this highway. Yeah. So yeah. I'm driving down highway is a strong word. I'm driving down this road, <laughs> two lane, two, two lane road, and on my left side, so my south side was just brown and uh, not a whole lot of feed on my right was green and tons of feed and on the left side of the road there was a herd of pronghorn uh sitting in the only little patch of green in the field that they were in and there was no way for them to cross over because it was the exact kind of fence that they can't go through meanwhile just across the road is just gorgeous green wide open you you know you can see for days exactly what they want and they were stuck on the other side I, I will say to that you know one of the one of the important pieces here is for me is to not you know point fingers and say oh you know you have a bad sense right right you know, like I, I don't that's not what I'm trying to do um, what I'm trying to do and what makes this project successful is that you know we're, I'm approaching this as an opportunity so. There's an opportunity here to, to find areas where it's suitable for a wildlife-friendly fence uh, to be put in and that, that will suit the needs of the landowner um, and will, it will help wildlife. And that's, you know, I recognize that that's not going to be possible everywhere. Um, you know, there's pastures where, you know, ranchers are going to need to have their, their, their tiny calves and don't want them to get out. And so we might not be able to do wildlife from the fence there, but on any given ranch, you know, in the West, there's opportunity to have wildlife from the fence somewhere. And a lot of that, a lot of that potential wildlife from the fencing might also be where the wildlife want to go because it's, you know, maybe away from where people are, you know, in these areas that, um, you know, the wildlife will find, uh, the, the spots that are more comfortable for them to move through. Um, and so that's something I, you know, try to keep in mind. And yeah, we have in Southwest Montana, there's a, there's a long legacy of, of sheep ranching and that's mostly changed to cattle, but these fences that were put in in the early part of the last century, you know, they, they stay, they stay up and they're impressive there, you know, they, <laughs> You know, if it, if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. They, they're just on the landscape. And it might not be that the rancher necessarily, you know, if they were to build a new fence, they may not go out and build a new Wolkenmeyer fence. But the reality is that they're out there. Out there. And, and I think this is an important point for, uh, for our public land. You know, there's an opportunity to, to really work on our, on our public land to get those fences um, as wildlife friendly as possible while still doing their job. And you and and you've got quite a, a bit of good, really good buy-in from from some of the ranchers, the private landowners, holders in the in the area. Um, yeah. And and uh, you have have to have that yeah. for you know a hundred mile long uh, migration that that, uh, that that these critters are are making. They have to go across oh, yeah. you know private land. Um, uh, in, in, in fences, private land separating other private land, and, and but you, it, it seems like you've got quite a bit of good buy-in from some of those, some of those local yeah. um, private land owners. Yeah. Yeah. So how is it, or, or how are the 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 ranchers or the landowners? I guess kind of two part. How are you guys approaching them, and then how, you know what is their you know, how, how do they view it when you propose to them that you want to, you know, uh, you know, possibly modify or remove some fence, or I'm assuming if, if fence is being removed, maybe it's just old and, and the land is, you know, maybe previously, uh, private owned, maybe now it's, it's part of the public land and it just, the fence was never taken down. So kind of, kind of, what does that process look like? Yeah. So 
everybody's different. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> um, you know, some responses I get are, well, there's no, there's no problem with that pen. You know, it, it works for me. I don't, I don't really see a need to, to change it. Um, and that, you know, I, I get that. Um, and, and, and it's expensive for those, for anybody, whether it's public or private. Expenses are, yeah, it's just expensive to build. Right. And, and even if, um, you know, so through this grant, we, we, we can provide material and labor, um, you know, and I'm trying to stretch my, my, my grant dollars as far as possible. So if a landowner is willing um, and they have materials around, you know, we're a couple of the fence sections um, we're, we're, we're doing in, in that sort of collaboration where the landowner is providing the materials. I'm providing the volunteer crews to remove it and removal, you know, is its own beast uh, with these, with these old fences that have sagebrush trees growing yeah. up, growing up through them. <laughs> we, we cut one down today that was over 70 years old. Yeah. I mean, wow. yeah. So, uh, so they, 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 you know, it, it, I would say it's, it's a conversation. A lot of the time uh, it, it requires, you know, talking on the phone first, and then meeting in person and looking at it and kind of discussing options and then meeting again, potentially for, to, to really confirm that, you know, this is, let everybody think about it. And, and so it's, it's not a, it's not an immediate um, process. And there's a lot of consideration. Um, you know, this spot that we're, 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 where we're working is a really popular hunting area. So landowners want to make sure that their fence, their new, the new fence, if we remove one and we're rebuilding it as wildlife friendly, they want to make sure that's up before hunting season starts. So that's, you know, uh, a constraint that, that I'm dealing with um, when I have a contract, a local contractor who's also coming in to, re, to rebuild it, who's also dealing with, you know, supply shortages and labor shortages and, you know, coming out of the pandemic and having uh, all of these other issues to deal with. Um, and I... And I'm trying to get it, you know, keep it on a deadline. So there's, it's not just the cost or the, um, you know, it's the reality of having your fence down um, for maybe yeah. a month at a time. And what that, you know, it's like, okay, well, that 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 makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, we had, I came out, two, I guess two years ago now when I was up here with Artemis and your wife. Was, was it last summer? Mm-hmm. We were able to squeeze something in. Yeah, that's right. And, and we were going um, to a different area, but same project with the FWP um, biologist, Vanna, and, and we were headed to pull some fence, and the private landowner, I might have had private on both sides, I can't remember, but they still had horses in the one uh, pasture there, so we had to redirect, and, and I can't remember the specifics on why they couldn't get their stock off of that particular uh, section of land, but they couldn't. So Anna had to redirect at the last minute, um, which is a, a challenge in and of just communication out here uh, in you know minimal cell service. Um, but but yeah, so we had to redirect off that because of that constraint, which is the kind of same concept where if you. Still had stock on that, so we couldn't tear his fence out. Yeah. Um, they want his horses to be wandering over <laughs> somebody else's bikes or yeah. you know, off of the highway or whatever. Sure. Yeah. And that's a that's a real logistical challenge there too, because you can make all the preparations on having volunteers, you know, put a date on the calendar. And I'm thinking about like even right now, you know, horses being in and stuff that 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 makes you have to move, but. Right now it's pouring rain outside, and earlier today we were, you know, we were out Boy, there looking at smoke coming off maybe a new Yeah, yeah. We watched we watched a, a fire get started by lightning today, but also you know if it starts raining, you can't get into some of these spots. So you might have a or morning. out or shit or you out. Can't get out. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be in there eating Cheetos for three days. <laughs> yeah. There's all these logistical pieces, you know, that you have no control over so so having things you know as as well in line as possible is so important yeah. and i've been on a lot of volunteer things 
uh, and this is this is pretty well laid out. This is pretty turnkey the way things are set up. You, you show up as a volunteer. I didn't even have to bring my own tools, which that's new. Um, <laughs> usually, you show up and the coordinator's like, "Hey, where's your tools?" You know, <laughs> um, even at gloves and snacks and waters and Gatorades and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, uh, things are getting pretty sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't mess around. <laughs> At least not with that stuff. <laughs> so now, over the next uh, three years of <clears throat> the fence work that you'll be doing, uh, I mean, what is, I mean, how much area do you anticipate that this could potentially, you know, open up? Or, I mean, I know it's 30 miles of fence is the goal, but I'd imagine that you know, just accessing that is going to op- open up a, a whole, you know, wider range for, for these pronghorn uh, to migrate uh, down. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I had another, another uh, participant ask me, like, what, is, what does success look like? Um, and I, you know, I didn't have a good, a straightforward answer um, because I'm, you know, I'm looking at this as a sense of like, you know, being a caretaker for, you know, wildlife. And that we don't, we won't really know exactly what the, you know, the end goal, the outcome is. Um, there's not like some metric that is, okay, we've done, we've done it all. <laughs> right. Um, there's no more work to be done. So it's, it's more about, yeah, there's a, there's a lot actually there, you know, there's a, there's a big education and engagement component to it to get both, um, yeah, volunteers and the public involved in, 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 in conversations about uh, wildlife migrations. And, you know, here in Montana, over 80% of the public supports, you know, conservation of, of wildlife migrations. Um, and so, and, and we have these other examples in the West, um, like in Wyoming that have, you know, they've done a really, really good job of um, highlighting the, the phenomenal movements that these animals are doing that we used to have, you know, way more of these migrations and and we just have a few remaining. So, um, so it's more about that sort of, you know, uh, long-term sort of caretaking, making sure that these wild, that these populations can continue doing this long into the future. Um, And that's where, you know, a few things sort of ecologically we can do is we can focus on, the areas where they're going to be stressed the most on their winter range and make sure they can get around easy so that, you know, on a day-to-day basis, if it, if it has, if there's going to be a, a heavy snowstorm one day, they can, they can move out of that area and get to the more, you know, sun exposed uh, wind blown area. And that means maybe crossing a few really low fences and that might have an impact on their, be able, you know, that might, or injure them directly uh, that might be the all it takes for an otherwise or an already stressed animal to, to not make it through the through the winter um, but then on a sort of that more indirect you know 30,000 foot view if there's areas that they, they, they can no longer access they, they like to access because we've subdivided and we've you know developed and we've built more paved more roads and you know had this expansion um of our human footprint that could restrict these you know individuals from making the these most extreme movements so yeah it's it's a it's a good question on on sort of what the ultimate goal is and and i think for now uh we want to see we want to really evaluate how our actions are working so that's really the cool benefit of having this collar data Mm-hmm. Is that we can see? Okay, we did this fence. We, we removed it. We replaced it with wildlife friendly, uh, or or this other fence. We just modified the bottom strand. Or and here's this other fence. We just modified the top strand uh, for elk, maybe. And um, you know what has been the and and so what's the response from wildlife to that? And and so and it's so just sort of build build this process um, throughout the West. Now while it seems like the the focus or at least the the animals the species that's that are collared is is obviously the pronghorn 
but has there been any type of study done maybe in the past or is it all kind of being done uh, succinctly, I guess, to, to some degree, maybe, you know, aerial uh, like helicopters or, you know, I, I know stuff like that is probably expensive, but to where you can kind of see the effect that it's having on, you know, the other, other animals that you mentioned, like moose, like um, elk, like mule deer, like that, that you can see that are kind of following this same migratory path. Yeah, so the collar data is really the best um, in terms of those long movements. But on a on a more sort of seasonal range, what we can do is we can put out wildlife cameras, um, and we can do studies with, with cameras to see you know sort of a pre and post um, evaluation of, of how different species are responding. And so I think there's a big movement to use cameras, you know, more broadly because they are you know they're not invasive um, on the animals um, you know when we do the pronghorn collaring study we have um, there's significant you know like eight to ten percent mortality just from that so it doesn't it's not a it's not a <laughs> it's not a uh, it's not it's not a perfect it's not a friendly yeah. thing yeah it's just very expensive but it but it has incredible data i mean it's it's the data that it provides is unparalleled um, but through other means, you know, using cameras, we can, I think we can get at a lot of the same, a lot of the same questions, um, in terms of habitat use, uh, abundance, you know, occupancy, those types of things. So, um, I haven't started that yet, but I'm really excited to, to, uh, to get a, uh, a sponsor for, for giving us wildlife cameras so we can go do that. Yeah. <laughs> Get some up from Arizona. They can't use them in Arizona anymore. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, as I mean, this. So this is you're you're just kind of in the start of week two, and how much uh, fence at this point? uh, I know the goal is is ten miles. Where do you think you guys are at in in relation to that as kind of a goal? for the first, you know, nine, 10 days here. Yeah. So right around four and a half miles, um, removed or modified. Um, and so the challenge that I've, you know, I have no one else to blame but myself. (laughs) Uh, there's just too many places. (laughs) Uh, that I chose some of the hardest, most difficult, uh, oldest, woven wire fences to remove and replace this year, um, about three and a half miles. And so those fences are, they take up a disproportionate amount of time and resources to, to modify or to change to wildlife friendly. Um, so like, like today, you know, we were cutting down brush on the fence. And even so the fence is removed, the, the, the woven wire is, you know, laid down on the side, um, and the posts are gone except for a few posts that mark where the, the, the fence was. And I need to leave those posts so that the contractor knows where to build the fence. Cause we need to build the fence exactly where it was. Cause this is a private land, public land border fence. Uh, and, and there's, there's, you know, uh, uh, NEPA and endangered species act and historic preservation act that goes into this. So we can't, we can't just move a fence. It, it's like a crime to move it. <laughs> so like an actual, actual crime yeah, to, so, to move it. Um, so it takes, it takes a number of days with a number of volunteers to both remove and prep this type of fence for a rebuild. Well, that stuff, that woven wire, sagebrush has woven itself through yeah. the woven wire. Yeah. The, the sheep fence yeah. stuff. So, so it's, I mean, it is not easy to get that out significantly more difficult than pulling when I've pulled barbed wire before and you roll it up. It's a lot yeah. easier to deal with yeah. in that sense. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, we we had to cut a lot of, of yeah. sage that was, like Jared said, we you say 70 or 71 yeah. yards or something. There, there was one that I happened to just be uh, crouched down next to, and I just started counting rays, and I quit at 70, but there were, there were a few more in there. Yeah, so uh, it's and it's it's woven in like yeah, so it's grown around that yeah. into it. 
yeah. and, and wiggled up and, and through it. Some, sometimes it's easier to cut the fence than it is to cut the, the sagebrush, but then we still want to get the sagebrush out of the way so okay. the contractor can get in there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, ideally we would be modifying them. So, we, like I said, we would be, you know, removing maybe the bottom whatever, whatever, how many, however many strands of barbed wire we needed to remove in order to have the lowest wire be 16 or 18 inches above the ground. Uh, and then, you know, the icing on the cake would be to remove, to replace that bottom wire with, with smooth wire. Um, and that, you know, the, yeah, so that, that helps a number of, of species, uh, mostly juvenile. So, you know, the juven, juvenile ungulates, they have the, the biggest problem with fences. Um, and the problem is that they, they can kill them. Yeah. 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 They tangled up in it. And, and there they are. Yeah. It's not a pretty picture to see yeah. one of them hanging from a fence. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, in the future, the, the, the one of the things that we're, we're interested in is um, trying to figure out, uh, yeah, just what's the best way to do this? Is the best way to, remove and replace a whole mile of this stuff or should we just be replacing uh, a section of it um and and you know to to have the, the biggest impact with our dollars um so we're, we're kind of working on that and, and trying some different approaches and that was a cool thing that you explained this morning was we weren't removing all the fence going along the entire riparian zone we were removing and replacing the fence in the thinnest point of the riparian zone because Right, right. The, the narrowest, yeah. narrow width of it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the pronghorn, you know, they don't like going into trees. They like to be able to see. Uh, unlike, unlike elk and deer, they use their eyes as the primary thing. You know, we joke you can you can uh, trick a, an elk or a or a bull uh, or or a buck. You know, you can trick their eyes, but you'll never trick their nose. Well, with pronghorn, you'll never trick their eyes. And so they hate going through stuff where they might get tricked. And it was the thinnest spot in that low-lying riparian, which for folks who don't know, riparian is basically it's where a creek runs and there's trees that grow around it, sort of. That's a, that's a butchered explanation. I can see you hurting over there. <laughs> 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 but it's, it's essentially a yeah. low-lying, you know, that's great. Yeah. river area. Yeah. yeah, I'll never get to see jobs on it again. Oh. <laughs> But they, they don't like going through it. So we were replacing the fence section along that narrowest part of it where they yeah, would one open sagebrush flat to the one on the other side. Yep. Yeah. Yep. With the least danger. Yeah. And that saves a ton of money, you know, just doing those little sections. And I'm yep. sure you can see some of that from the GPS data where they tend to focus and, and, and they're trying to go here. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's, if that's where they want to go, if we can focus on that area and, and get the most bang for the buck sure. out of that area, then, yeah. then so much the better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of a, two questions here. So one, how many uh, pronghorn uh, are collar that they're actually uh, doing that side of the study on? There's 40 female collared. Um, at any given time, so they okay. they recollar in order every winter in order to maintain forty. Okay, all right. And so that's in this in this, in this study area, yeah. Okay. And that's FWP doing that. Yeah, that's Montana Fish Wildlife Park doing that. Yeah. Okay, so then <clears throat> my second second question is here. So after the three years, and we've we you know you touched on it earlier that you know success is is kind of hard to define like it's it feels like you'll know it when you see it but you you know you have this idea of of what you expect it to be but you know time will tell essentially so after those three years and you've been able to you know review uh, all the data that you've collected all the results uh, you know of of pronghorn being able to actually successfully navigate you know this uh, migratory route going forward you know, what is maybe like the next three years look like? I mean, is it just further uh, studying uh, and seeing where you can open up more passage uh, for the pronghorn? Or is it kind of shifted then to maybe, you know, maybe elk or maybe mule deer after that? That's a great question. Um, yeah, so we want to, I want to, you know, 
kind of scale this up uh, to be across Montana um, and to work start working with Idaho as well and to start thinking, you know, in these in these bigger picture landscapes um, about wildlife corridors and uh, migration routes that are, yeah, multi-species. And uh, pronghorn are just kind of the poster child uh, because they have such a, uh, a very visible uh, response to fencing. Um, but, you know, fences are, are just part of this. You know, roads are also part of it. Um, and and when, when you have a road, you have almost all the, you know, pretty much everywhere you have a road except for parts of BLM or Forest Service, there's going to be fences associated with that road. So there's these compounding effects of, say, a road that, that you know, you need to think about if we're, if we're talking about migration from uh, Montana to Idaho for elk or pronghorn or sage grouse or, uh, yeah, those, those would be kind of the three down here that are mule deer. Um, you know, what are the compounding effects of human development uh, that might restrict uh, wildlife migration into the future? So that's, that's kind of the, the longer term. Um, and we need, yeah, we need more research and, and um, scientific data to help us uh, with that as well. And a big part of that is, yeah, continuing with spatial analysis of um, these, you know, human development features as well as better understanding the habitat needs of different species from season to season. Yeah, I'd have to imagine the the amount of data that you have to sift through uh, to, to analyze, to, to come up with these, you know, conclusions has got to be, you know, I mean, I would, uh, maybe this is kind of off the deep end a little bit, but it seems like it would take years to kind of, you know, have that the proper data to where everyone involved feels comfortable with making the decision on what the next move is uh, to, to really help preserve, um, you know, the, the migratory uh, paths of these animals. Yeah, you're totally right. And that's why I say the really unique um, reality of, of, of my position here uh, that I'm so grateful for is that it's, it's really a really good collaborative group of folks. It's um, impressive to see the, the, yeah. the list of all the different agencies and entities that are involved. Yeah. yeah. So that that's, I feel, yeah, just so lucky that, you know, I have the support of the federal agencies and the state agencies to, um, to work on these projects. And so, yeah, I think it, but there are really good examples of, um, you know, elsewhere where uh, these projects have come together at a big scale and, multi-million dollar uh, wildlife crossing go in over highways and um it yeah it's uh, definitely achievable and yeah, we're, we're very much at the early stages of, of some stuff that we've seen elsewhere like in wyoming where it took years they were they were at stages similar to this uh, before not necessarily dealing with the fences out of the gate but they were definitely dealing with highway issues uh with, with the big migrations there and one thing that the collar data is showing right away uh, I-15 runs right through this area, and all, all those collars go, anyone that goes anywhere near, it just runs into a nice, solid wall there. And it's clear they want to go and cross. Um, and there's there's no wildlife underpasses or overpasses in the area. Like you were saying I mean, earlier, that, that's a, that becomes even more complicated because it's not a pain not a big deal if a deer runs across or an antelope runs across bloody dick road no it, it becomes more of a challenge <laughs> yeah yeah when you got elk running across i-15 it's, yeah. it's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be bad for everybody including the elk but if they have a way to get over it uh, the way we've seen i mean there's some parts of montana that have wildlife crossing um yeah. up, up in uh, the flathead region I, I drove under a few this last this last week um, and they're strategically placed based off of the data. So as this program develops, we're going to be able to do some really incredible big landscape things, um, you know, as, as things continue to play out. And one, one thing on the point of the collaboration, some of the biologists involved have been doing, you know, been working in this area for decades. And that's just invaluable. You know, uh, Val being able to, 
um, she's or sorry, Vanna, um, being able to be out on the on this landscape for the last you know couple decades. She knows all a lot of this stuff, and some of it she knew anecdotally. Well, now the data, you know, is is giving a clearer picture of what's actually going on. And new tech being able to open up opportunities for individuals and businesses to engage and partner to help make it happen when maybe agencies aren't able to move as fast. Uh, will mean that we can save some things that 10 years ago weren't even on the table for being saved. Well, and some of this data that she's collected otherwise probably informed her route that you were talking about when she did her 50 miles and, and figured out, hey, there are this many fences, but, but she's got that GPS data that says this is the route that you ought to be walking, you ought to hike if you want to find out where these, where these critters really want to go and, and what challenges they face where they want to be that they're trying to be yeah um, kind of that cross between the technology and then boots on the ground and i, I would imagine she probably quite enjoyed that 50 mile walk across yeah. in a hundred plus degrees <laughs> you know she was <laughs> raining the whole way she's tougher than the rest of us yeah, yeah. all of us combined <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so <clears throat> this is obviously the first year uh, of really or the first year of the the labor side, the the boots on the ground side of the three-year project. So let's say, you know, you're able to to accomplish the the goal of of modifying or removing the the 10 miles of fence this year. So let's say next year, the the volunteers uh, double. You know, your budget maybe gets a little bit more. There's more donors, uh, more organizations, or, or people that want to, you know, donate to the cause and be involved with this project. You know, does that then kind of shift uh, the goal maybe from a, you know, from maybe 10 miles to maybe 15 miles that year, or are you still kind of keeping it there? And anything that's done above and beyond that is just icing on the cake. Well, that's a good question. I, I think we, yeah, I. I it's hard. I think I would love that if that became the reality that, you know, we doubled in volunteers, but it's hard to plan for that. It's hard to know exactly how things are going to go. So I would say, yeah, for now, for next year, if that were the case, you know, we could hammer out 10 miles in a a, a couple of weeks again, and then, and then continue on from there if if possible. and we might need another Simon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Additional Simon, not another. Yeah, a lot of days out in the field working as hard as we've been working. He's, this dude's going to be a stud by the end of the day. <laughs> some hard work out there in that heat. Well, no, this is, this is such an awesome project, and, I, and I'm really glad that I was able to, and Jared, that you were able to kind of, we were, you know, we, we talked, you know, five hours ago. Um, and said, "Hey, let's." Uh, you had an idea, per usual, about how we can, you know, kind of pull something together. And, and I'm really glad that we were able to, because, you know, hearing about what you guys are, you know, what the whole project entails, you know, kind of a, a breakdown of year to year what you're looking to do, and also the big picture of what you're hoping, or how you're hoping to improve just the species as a whole, as a whole, has been awesome. And I think it's it's absolutely something that uh, people need to be more aware of. And I think that as people listen and they do a bit of research on, on their own, you know, I, I really hope that, you know, like we just talked about, that maybe next year, you know, maybe you don't double the, the number of volunteers, but maybe, you know, you get, you know, 20% more, 30% more volunteers and you're able to just do that much more work. Uh, from the from the membership side, you know, folks folks responding and getting involved. I just want to put on the record what some folks have done. Oh, it's incredible for getting out here. Um, I mean, Clark and I came from roughly the same, you know, Greater Yellowstone ecosystem area uh, around Bozeman, and he's closer to Yellowstone. Uh, we had today on this project uh, a couple from Las Vegas. Who they were? They decided they were going to come drive up and and they were going to make a vacation out of it, come and volunteer. And then they got the email about the the Sheep Foundation uh, emergency need for volunteers and decided to detour through South Dakota. So they they went to South Dakota first, pulled up a, a bunch of uh, uh, conifers 
uh, out for wild sheep and then drove out this way, and they've been working their butts off out here. Um, and, and to be clear, they're not a young couple either. Um, they're, they're, they're moving toward retirement, but they want to spend as much time as possible volunteering for wildlife. So, I mean, they, they came out, they worked their butts off, so they came from Vegas. Um, we had last, what was it, uh, last third Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, uh, had uh, Nate uh, coming out. He's he, he, on Instagram. He goes by Pencil Tucky Adventure, uh, and, and he came out from Pennsylvania, and he flew out. Couldn't find a, a rental car in the Bozeman area, so he flew to Salt Lake instead, rented a car in Salt Lake, and drove himself up to come and volunteer on this thing. Smashed his finger, <laughs> drove back to Salt Lake. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Appreciate yeah. it. Drove back to Salt Lake and then flew home. Um, this weekend, uh, Mike Schmillen in River City, Tile, and Stone out of the Twin Cities area. So anyone listening in the Twin Cities, you need tile and stonework done, uh, contact River City. He's bringing his whole company out here. They're oh, driving wow. out. And yeah, and they're going to go and they're, they're doing crazy stuff with you. Stuff, stuff, stuff we're not doing right now with, with heavier machinery and stuff, uh, kind of some real heavy lifting. He's driving them the whole way out. Uh, there have been folks from the Dakotas, people coming from all over who will never, likely never, ever get to see the benefit of the work that they did firsthand. And on, on, on top of that, we also had uh, Randy Newberg had his crew come out. They, they worked a bit. Um, the Stone Glacier guys, they sent uh, a bunch of the young guys out uh, to, you know, get their, get their wiggles out before pronghorn season, I think. Um, you know, there's, there've been folks diving in as best they can to help out with this fully understanding they're not going to get to directly benefit from the work, you know, in a consumptive way necessarily. Well, those stone glacier guys and those fresh track guys, they're probably going to shoot the wrong part, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but for the most part, you know, folks, folks are coming out and they're, they're ones who gave money to help match the grant. And then there were others that get, are given their time because the time was, Calculated as just you know as just as much. Today we're you know cutting stage so that it's something that the contractors don't have to bill for when they come out. So volunteer hours can be worth a lot of money if you're intentional about it. And man, some folks really sacrifice to be here and help out. And it, I'm I'm just overwhelmed by by the heart that they showed. Well, if those guys coming from Minneapolis, if they're gonna be um, you know, spooling up and getting out that woven wire. I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's hundreds of pounds each time. Yeah, yeah and, and from down where we were, uh, to get from that fence line where we stopped today back to where um, our trucks were, yeah. Um, yeah. man, that's, that'd be a lot of work yeah. hauling that out my hand. Um, yeah. that, it, that stuff, there's a lot of that wire. Yeah, I, I, would, just echo, I would just echo, you know, everything Jared said, uh, you know, super grateful and, and privileged to be in this position to be able to work with such passionate folks. So I'm, I'm excited. It, it, it motivates me to, to keep going and, and do more. So yeah, it's great. No, that's great, man. You better have the Cheetos restocked by the time those guys from Minnesota get <laughs> Hopefully we'll have some more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is this has been great, guys. I've really uh, enjoyed uh, talking to you and hearing more about this. And you know, all things considered, if if uh, if I have the ability and the opportunity and the chance to next year, I would love to come out and be a part of this because you know the work that you know not only you're doing there um, in Montana, but just all over the West with with projects like this is while you know I've never hunted pronghorn or anything like that. I mean, I certainly aspire to uh, at some point. But it's 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 all these people coming together um, for the betterment of something you know greater than them, and that's that's something that I think people certainly want to be a part of. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot to be out on that stage, flat, mm -hmm. looking at those. Even though it's a little bit smoky, but but looking across at the mountains over there, and we've seen white-tailed deer, and we've seen antelope, and we've seen elk, and we've seen moose. And, yeah, I think Jared saw a pygmy rabbit the other day. Yeah, and we've seen tiny, tiny, tiny little pygmy rabbit is what it looked like. Yeah, so we've seen yeah. red-tailed hawks and yeah. northern harriers and yeah. all Beautiful kinds of spot. stuff. So it's so yeah. it's 
it's, it was, it's, it's been fun just in the two days, like, you know, yeah. the previous whatever, six yeah, you days that you've had. You guys hit the jackpot with the wildlife. Yeah, man. <laughs> Maybe we're stopping for lunch today, and there's a thunderstorm rolling in, and lightning strikes, and then we're looking, and there's smoke coming up from where that lightning struck. <laughs> Well, I guess we got to call in a forest fire that we just watched get started. You know, uh, it's pretty incredible opportunity. It's a wild place. Yeah. Well, Clark, Jared, Simon, I really appreciate the time, guys. Uh, I'm sure that after a long day, you guys probably want to have some food, maybe a cold beverage or two. So I think you uh, absolutely deserve that this evening. Thanks, Marcus. Oh, yeah, thanks for having us, Marcus. All right, well, we'll take care, guys, and uh, continue to uh, fight the good fight. I, we all appreciate it. Thank oh, you. Fun, man. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay, well, a big thanks to Simon and Clark and Jared for joining me uh, this week and telling me about this cool pronghorn project that they have going on out there. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, uh, Go Hunt and Stone Glacier, as well as Wild Rivers Coffee Company. Uh, please be sure and support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org and over there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop i also encourage you guys to follow two percent on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation driven content so so you'll definitely enjoy those posts in your feed so again if you'd like to learn more about two percent for conservation you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org thanks for tuning in this week everyone hope you liked the episode remember stay safe out there and conservation starts with you